This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hello, I am Jenna Siri. I'm a bookseller and the associate producer of Poured Over, and I am joined today with the incredible Maggie Smith, the poet. <laughs> she is the award-winning author of Goldenrod, Keep Moving, um, published poems in just about everywhere where you can publish a poem. And I know everyone remembers Good Bones. But today we are here to talk about her new memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Maggie, I'm so excited to have you here with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I think I want to start with just having you do a little explanation of this book. I think uh, so many parts of this story could be conservatively called be called a doozy. Um, there's <laughs> a lot in here. There's a lot of emotions. Uh, so I just want to have you start and introduce the book for our listeners. Yeah, there's a lot of experience in in this book. Um, I think maybe the best way to to describe it is uh, it's the book I wrote about coming home to myself in middle age, um, sort of the opposite of a midlife crisis. So if you think of what a crisis is, it's like an emergency. The opposite of a midlife crisis would be sort of like midlife recovery or return to self. And so for me, the crisis was the end of my marriage. And that became an opportunity in a way for me to kind of look at myself, figure out who I was, what I wanted, what was important to me and figure out a new way to move forward. And so that's that's really what the writing process of this book was. And choosing to write a memoir at any point is a pretty substantial undertaking. It takes a lot of guts and a lot of commitment to sort of get all that out on the page and to decide that that's what you want to do. How did it come to you that this was the story that you wanted to tell and that this was the time you wanted to do it? Yeah. I mean, whenever I approach a piece of writing personally, I always expect it to be a poem. <laughs> so that's my home genre. So when I write down with an idea, whether it's a line or a metaphor or, or something, and I, you know, something that is dragging me to the page, my instinct is poem first. I couldn't do this in a poem. You know, there's too much storytelling. There's too much flashback. There's too much needing to sort of think and talk my way through it. I knew that in order to do the kind of narrative work that I needed to do in this book, it was not going to be a collection of poems on the theme of divorce and, and recovering the self. But having said that, I did approach the process as a poet, right? I mean, the structure is the structure because I came to it as a poet. In many ways, it felt like Maybe you were writing sort of the book you wanted to read or the book that you needed to read at that time. It felt, you know, there's so much conversation with yourself and with the reader in this book that I find so interesting and something that isn't common in many memoirs and it sort of has a different tone. Did you feel any of that while you were writing or was it, you know, something later when you look back that you can think of it a little differently now? Yeah, I think I knew if I was going to be as vulnerable personally as a woman and as a mother on the page that I also wanted to be really forthcoming and vulnerable as a writer. And so if I wasn't going to be hiding a lot of stuff about my life, I also didn't want to hide the craft of mm -hmm. building the book for myself. And so, yeah, I, I think I knew pretty early on that I wanted to be able to have this sort of intimate relationship with the reader and so made choices to make that happen. One of my favorite things that you say sort of right off the bat is that this isn't a tell-all, right? That this is 
many, you call it many, many other things, but a tell-all is never one of them. Was it challenging to sort of find the parameters of what you wanted to say in this? Because there's clearly so much that goes into it. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, you know, memoir is new to me, writing is not new to me, and publishing books isn't new to me, but this was a new project. And so I came to it thinking, okay, what are our preconceived notions about memoir, Mm -hmm. both as writers and as readers? Like, what do we think is on the menu when we open a memoir? And it felt important to me to say in the very first sentence, like, if you're expecting a tell-all, if you're expecting my entire life laid out, it's not on the menu. And here are some of the reasons why actually that's not on the menu in any book because we can only ever speak for ourselves. So it it wasn't actually that difficult for me to sort of intuitively know what I felt comfortable sharing and what I didn't. I feel like boundaries in life and in writing are healthy things, right? And I think we sort of are used to these, if you hear, oh, it's a memoir and the author's talking about her divorce, you you expect salacious, you might expect to have all these nitty gritty details, but who is that for? Is that for an audience? It's not for the writer. So to have this experience going in was so different, I think, and many readers will feel exactly the same. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, who who is the salaciousness for? Mm-hmm. You know, why why do I want to click on that link with the clickbaity headline? Like, what is it about us that mm-hmm. that is so curious about other people's lives and what happens behind closed doors? And so that's part of what I I saw this book as an opportunity to even just have those conversations mm-hmm. and ask ourselves hard questions about like what do we think we are owed by another writer and and their life right. and as readers like what do we expect and maybe this is a conversation we should be having more yeah i think that there you know when i picked up this book i was i was familiar with your poetry and i became familiar through keep moving with you know a lot of your other sort of ideas but you know having read good bones having read goldenrod this was so much more than you know you get to see you so much more than you can through poetry it's such a more exposing genre um does it feel very different to put this out in the world than some of the things you've put out in the past oh yes i mean you're right it is more exposing i think by its very nature like the form of poetry but also the the idea of the speaker you know the sort of like the narrator voice in a poem allows you to kind of hold the stuff in a poem at arm's length. So even if it's a poem like Good Bones where there's a mother with children, Mm -hmm. okay, it's mostly me, right? Like I'm writing that (laughs) from my experience, but but we're taught and we know enough to be like the speaker of the poem, not Maggie Smith is saying. But in memoir, it just feels like that distance is largely collapsed. And so part of what I wanted to do with some of the choices I made in the book was give myself a little bit more cushion. I think readers will get a very good sense of knowing you, but not in a way that feels, like you said, too open. And the reader won't know you, but through this, it it will allow them to reflect a lot back, even for people who haven't gone through that exact situation. I think there's so much in here that is very, it allows a mirror for readers to look back on themselves. Oh, I love that. And I, I hope that's right. I mean, I, I I find that when I read memoir, that's one of my favorite things about it is even if my life doesn't have actually that many mirrored touch points, 
what the other person's experience. Somehow I leave that book feeling less alone because yeah. I've, I've been welcomed into somebody else's humanity, right? And I feel like they've shared part of themselves with me and that feels communal as an experience, which is what I love, you know, going to books for period. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I hope, I hope that that that's an experience that people have with this book. I think of all genres, memoir has the most sort of supportive and healing opportunities for both writer and reader. As you were writing, did you have any experiences of that? Did things surprise you as you were working through things? You want to share any of those surprises with us? Oh, definitely. I mean, I off the top of my head, I, I couldn't name one, but I definitely think that giving yourself the opportunity or the project of writing about a sort of wide swath of experience, you know, really looking back at my 20s, my 30s, and my and my 40s, thinking about who I am as a mom and who I was as a partner and who I've been as a friend, as a daughter, and my writing life. I think we are often encouraged to think or write about any of those things, but maybe not between the covers of a single book. Mm-hmm. And so writing about all those things at once invited me to see sort of correlations or echoes like, oh, this is what was happening. Like when this poem was published, this is what was happening in my personal life. Like there's a touch point, but you're not necessarily thinking about that unless you're tasked with writing a memoir Um, or, you know, me as a parent, some of these behaviors I see then reflected in who I was as a spouse, who I am as a poet. And so the integration I found really healing, like the opportunity to really sit down and and think, okay, so who am I as a whole human being, not sort of compartmentalized into these different pieces of me? I think that that's something that, you know, writing a memoir offers that writing fiction, writing poetry may not, but I think it also works the same way reading memoir. Mm-hmm. You know, it allows readers to stop and think, especially with your format, these sort of short vignettes, these prose poems, whatever, you know, the different pieces are it allows readers more time to stop in between and sort of reflect on those different emotions that come through. I found that very uh, interesting and challenging as I was reading. I had to, there were definitely points I had to stop and be like, all right, I'm going to take five minutes before I go back in there. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I mean, that's the magic of white space, right? Like the magic of white space in a poem is that it's literal breathing room on the Mm -hmm. page. It forces you to sort of sit with an image or word or line or phrase before you get to move on and read the rest. And so I really did, I mean, I approached this like a poet. So I wanted to use white space in the same way to give the reader literal sort of like reflection time before moving on to the next, the next bit. And I think many, you know, there are some readers who won't be used to reading something outside of a straight, you know, prose blocks of text, but memoir allows for so much room to play in form than many other things. It was so interesting to see all of your different influences come through. And like you had said, I have had read Good Bones and was familiar with Keep Moving and then reading in the book kind of what was happening at your in your own life at those times really just deepens the experience. I think that'll give readers a lot to sort of look into if they're familiar with your work and will make them curious to go seek those things out if they haven't found them yet. Yeah, maybe it will be sort of contextualizing in that way. Like, oh, so this was what was happening sort of behind the curtain as this was going on. Yeah. And I think there's so often we don't have any sort of 
of those connective tissues when we're thinking about writers. And it sort of deepens the experience of knowing those things when we can look and say, oh, yeah, I, I understand maybe now where that was coming from. It's a very good experience to sort of dive into a body of work in that way. I love that. Who, if you had to sort of think of an ideal reader for You Can Make This Place Beautiful, who would you hope finds this book on the shelf and brings it home? I mean, in, in some ways, it's someone like me who's maybe like in a, in a place midlife where they feel spread a little too thin. Maybe they're putting themselves last. They're probably caretaking a lot of other people, maybe kids, maybe a spouse, maybe aging parents, maybe coworkers, and feel like they need to um, not get lost in the shuffle. But on the other hand, part of me is like maybe, maybe someone 20 years earlier would be the right reader for this book who could see some of what could be coming down the road and maybe make some decisions differently. You know, maybe the ideal reader of this book would be Maggie Smith at 22. (laughs) Uh, And it would have acted like a sort of cautionary tale. Like if you don't be careful with the choices that you make, some of these things will come to pass, you know, like Dickens, Scrooge, getting to see the future on, on Christmas yes. Eve. I definitely have that written down in my notes. It's like art as healing, art as cautionary tale. I think. Wait, it's it, both. <laughs> yeah. What, what you bring to it definitely offers a lot of, of how you're going to read the book. Um, my second part to that last question is, how do you want readers to feel when they finished it? Um, oh, that's a good question. I suppose that answer is going to depend a lot on how closely their life experience mirrors mine. Right. Because I think if if people have had some of the experiences I talk about in the book, if people have been divorced, if people have you know lost someone who was a, a long-term companion to them, if people have, have suffered pregnancy loss, if people are you know parents of young kids, they will come to the end of this book with a different sense than someone who's coming to it without having some or all of those experiences. But I think regardless, I would really love a reader to close this book and feel seen. You know, maybe to take that a step further, maybe empowered would be a word I would want someone to feel at the end of this book. I agree. I think that's a great feeling to come away with from this. I had written down in my notes that it ultimately feels hopeful at the Mm. end. I think there's a sense, you know, of hope and progress and, you know, coming through all of the, you know, challenges, but you leave us with something good, something to look forward to. It's not always a happy ending kind of thing, but, you know. Yeah, all the wounds aren't healed, right, at the end of the book. It's not all tied up neat with a bow. Right. Alas, life does not work that way. And therefore, writing about life cannot, yeah. cannot with honesty and authenticity work that way. But I agree. I think I think it's hopeful in the same way that the end of Good Bones is hopeful, mm-hmm. you know, which and this gets its title from the end of Good Bones. Yeah. There are hard things and we can handle them. Things are improving and things are getting better. And we have the power to make the life that we want. Yeah, through that difficulty. Yeah, I I love that you came away with a sense of hope. That's that's a good thing. I did too. I mean, I finished yes. the book with a sense of hope, so I'm glad that's coming through. Right. 
now that you've, you know, it's about to be out in the world and everyone is going to, you know, come to it with from wherever they're coming from, do you feel like it's going to be interesting to see the responses of what people bring to it? Um, are you excited to sort of see the reactions as you hear, oh, I can't, you know, I thought this, I thought that as it sort of trickles back? Yeah, I don't know if ex- I don't know if excited <laughs> okay. um, is the right word. I don't I don't know exactly what it is. I think I'm I'm sort of preparing myself for like the range of emotions that people mm-hmm. will feel through reading this book because I know I had a range of emotions writing it. Yeah, I think what's been you know as as people have read the the early copies and I'm starting to get feedback or you know blurbs are coming back and reviews are coming in. I'm getting like little little nibbles and tastes of of what's resonating with people. And it's been beautiful so far, honestly, to hear how people have been sort of touched by the book and how it's resonated with them. Someone recently said, it's weird. I don't know that I could say I quote enjoyed it. Right. But they said, but it was a really pleasurable reading experience. And I said, okay, I I can live with that. It's it's a hard, sort of complex book and it goes into some heavy places, but I'm glad it was a pleasurable reading experience. Yes. No, I completely see where they're coming from on that. I think something that's so key on this book is even through all of the challenging emotions that are present and all of the clear emotional changes, ups and downs, the writing itself is so beautiful that there's you can't help but become immersed in those moments. I mean, it's clear you take the craft of creating this very seriously. I know that you have been writing, you've been editing, you're you teach writing. So those pieces all come very front and center. And so even when you're writing about these things that, you know, are heartbreaking, we can't help but keep reading. We can't help but want to know more. Oh, thank you. We'll just we'll wrap we'll wrap a little difficulty in a in a nice package and hopefully that will make it a little easier to take. (laughs) While we talk about craft, I have to wonder when you're writing something like this, these these vignettes that go together, do you outline them? Do you what's the the organizational process look like on that? No, there was no outline. I wish I had handy this like giant color-coded Word (laughs) document to show you because it it really looks unhinged. The sort of process of, I will say, assembling, right? Mm -hmm. So the writing writing was one part and I wrote all the pieces sort of one bit at a time. And the assembly process was something else. And it was much like what I do when I write a collection of poems, which is I write one poem at a time and I'm not really thinking about the other poems while I'm writing that one. And then I print them all out and I shuffle them together in my hands. And I think about what's the natural order, almost like making a playlist or a mixtape. Mm-hmm. What comes first? What's the welcome mat? Then what naturally follows? Then what naturally follows? And so I like literally printed drafts of this book out, hundreds of pages, <laughs> laid them out on my living room floor, got out markers, like borrowed my kids' colored markers. Thank you, Crayola. (laughs) And color-coded the different strands of this book, the question strands, the quote strands, the four-word spine of the narrative, Mm -hmm. and then looked at all the colors and worked from there, kind of assembling it by hand without anything that resembled an outline or Excel spreadsheet. Just just the vibes. Just Just so many vibes. (laughs) Yes. Guided by vibes. Well... 
that, you know, that gives us all hope that us non-outliners out there who want to, you know, imagine that you can jigsaw something together. Yes. Or Tetris. That was, that was my metaphor for myself is we're going to Tetris this together. Do you do a lot of revising on the pieces um, as you write them? Or do you like to go back and really rework something till it's perfect? Yeah, I am. I am a heavy reviser um, and I'm a whittler. So, um, and that probably comes from my, from my poet background, but when I revise, things tend to shrink. So things get smaller as I refine them and sort of compress them and think about what is essential and what the reader needs and what maybe like, oh, I said this four sentences ago in a less interesting way. Let's cut that out or combine. And so as actually, as I revised this book, it it shrunk. <laughs> it got smaller. Um, and page count instead of um, instead of longer because I kept thinking, no, I don't need that. I I want to like be as close to the bone as possible. I really want to be as spare and concise as possible, and let image do as much work as it can, and not be long winded. Like I really wanted to offer some things to the reader, and then step away and let you spend some time with it, mm-hmm. and in some cases, come to your own conclusions about it think about it reflect on it and then move to the next the next thing you kind of mentioned that the different threads that weave through one of the things that I found so enjoyable and sort of like easter egg hunting through this was sort of following your different framing devices the different narrative devices the quotes and the questions the sort of extended metaphor of the play that goes through this can you talk a little bit about sort of crafting those different elements to combine the story yeah I mean I remember where I where I was when I wrote the first bit of the play and I just was you know free writing like literally free writing at a coffee shop in my neighborhood and I just thought well wouldn't it be nice to write about this in third person and not have to stand in the vulnerability of writing about it as I so what would that feel like to be looking from the outside in on some of this story? And so it was really just an exercise for myself. And I had so much fun, seems like the wrong word, but it truly was. I had so much sort of fun, like it was intellectually stimulating and creative that I was like, no, I I don't want to only do that once in this book. I want that to be something that that crops up. And the same thing with the thinking about plot and character and all of the sort of conventions of narrative. I didn't really just want to dip in, bring that up to the reader and then never mention it again. I really wanted to weave it all the way through. And again, not to belabor the point, but this is something I do in poems, right? Like I bring an image up early in the poem. And then one of my favorite ways to pattern a poem or end a poem is to come back to an earlier phrase or come back and sort of twist or transform an earlier image, that's sort of like intuitive gut instinct poetry craft. And I knew I would probably want to use that in this book. And it adds just so many layers to the experience. When I finished it, I was like, I kind of want to start from the beginning again and look for those things that I miss because I know that there are things that I miss, especially, you know, not always paying attention to every single title, things like that. I feel like there's so much depth to go back and find on a second, third, 12th, three read. (laughs) I love that. And I have to say the writing experience was very similar for me. So writing the first draft and then going back and reading it to revise, I realized connections between things I hadn't realized on the first read. 
And that, you know, some of those chapters called On Second Thought came about in later revisions of the book because I was starting to make connections between Mm -hmm. things that were happening at different times. When you talked about being able to write those sections in third person and sort of the, the play sections and have those be a little bit almost more fictionalized. Did you ever consider writing a novel out of this? Would you <laughs> if ever only, consider? <laughs> if only I had. I think there's a there's a, a part in the book where I actually say, like, why didn't I do that? Um, that would have been less personally vulnerable yeah. and complicated. <laughs> yes. You know, I was thinking about Nora Ephron's um, book, Heartburn, which mm-hmm. is sort of famously taken from her life, but fictionalized, right? At least even like loosely fictionalized. And that gives you just a little bit of cover, even if it's right cover. I knew I was going to write it as nonfiction, but I had the sort of kicking myself feeling <laughs> all along, like, goodness, if I were naturally a fiction writer, I probably would have approached this material differently. Right. But I'm naturally a poet <laughs> and I naturally write about my own life in first person. This just feels more natural to me. I think it probably works best as a memoir, especially for all those emotional pieces that come along with it. As you were sort of tetrising this all together and doing your revising and doing your rewriting, how did you know this is it? I've got it. This is the final form. Yeah, that's the tricky thing about about any piece of writing and and the thing about memoir is like the book ends but the life doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, you close the book but the person keeps living the life. So all sorts of things have happened. Since I said I think I think this particular project I feel satisfied that I've written my way deeply enough into it. I've answered some questions for myself. I feel kind of at peace with this. It feels done to me. And that's never my students are always like how do you know when a piece of writing is done? And the real honest sort of unsatisfying answer is you don't. (laughs) You have like an intuitive sense um, or you just don't feel dissatisfied with it anymore. Or you feel like it's, it's doing the work it came to do. Your editor says, please stop. (laughs) Yeah. Or you have a deadline or yeah, your editor's like put down the pen. Um, (laughs) Someone just takes the pen and all the colored markers away from you and says, get off your living room floor. But yeah, I mean, I guess the the real answer, I think, for all of us is it's gut instinct. Like when you feel satisfied with it, when you would feel comfortable showing it to a lot of other people who don't know you and also a lot of other people who know you yeah. or think they know you, then it's probably ready. Definitely. It's a good answer. Um, going back to your students, your teaching, that's something that's very important to you. How does that factor into your writing? Like, do you feel like you learn a lot from your students? What's your favorite piece of advice to give to them? Oh, yeah. I mean, the two things really feed each other. I really teach as a writer. When I'm showing up to my students, I'm saying, here, I think you should try this because this is something that's really worked for me. Or have you ever thought about looking at it this way? Because I've had some pretty big breakthroughs in my own work by approaching it like this. So I I feel like I don't necessarily teach as a scholar of poetry. I teach as a practicing poet. And then of course, when sometimes they'll send work to me or the questions that they ask even are so just inspiring and help me kind of crack into different parts of my own creativity that I'm always really grateful for. So it does feel like a really healthy loop mm-hmm. for me of writing and teaching. And it's all about sort of talking about books 
and pushing our craft further and being in community and helping each other. For um, us here, that's all we ever want to do is talk about books and talk about craft and doing that and expanding that constant knowledge. So yeah. it's very interesting to hear you say those things and see how they sort of feed back into what your own work is. I mean, a life in books is the best life. Am I right? It certainly is. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm no offense to anyone else's <laughs> existence, but I really yeah. do think a, a life where you get to spend time with other people's sentences, it's a beautiful life. It's a gift. It's a gift. It is. Another gift that we have here and that I think is very important in this book is music. Mm. Um, it seems there's so many great references to artists and songs that sort of propel through the book and sort of uh, soundtrack different pieces. If you had to give us a couple of songs from the You Could Make This Place Beautiful playlist, Ooh. what would you suggest? Well, there are a couple of, of songs that have a sort of important role in the book. And one of them is Mountain Goat's Picture of My Dress, mm -hmm. which was inspired by something I tweeted about taking my wedding dress on a road trip um, which I never did, or or I shouldn't say never did, haven't done, haven't yet done. Always time. There is always time. It's still here. There's still time for some sort of cathartic adventure. <laughs> so yeah, I tweeted something about taking my wedding dress on a road trip. And John Darnielle of Mountain Goats wrote the song, Picture of My Dress, that um, was then on their record, Getting Into Knives. And so that is on the playlist. And I talk about it in the book because... Who thinks that something they tweet is going to right? end up being written into a song by one of their favorite bands? No one believes that. I don't think that Rainbow Connection is on the playlist, but it probably should be. And it would have to be the Kermit the Frog version. Yes. For reasons that will become clear when people read the book. Mm -hmm. Definitely. <laughs> there were definitely moments when I was reading through, I was like, I gotta look up some of these songs. I gotta make sure I know all the pieces. So to sort of set the tone for the different parts in the book. Yeah, there's a roller skating playlist in the book, um, which is mostly 70s and 80s funk. Mm -hmm. And then I am hopelessly Gen X. So there's a lot of 90s sort of indie references because that's just, that's my era. If uh, readers or listeners want to get all those, they'll just have to check out the rest in the book because it's worth it. <laughs> but my favorite question that I always ask to wrap things up is, who are the sort of literary influences of Maggie Smith? Who creates Maggie Ooh. Smith, poet, writer, reader? Oh, my goodness. I mean, not quite a literary reference, but a, a lot of who creates me these days as a writer are the two people that I live with. <laughs> Violet and Rhett, my children. I would say primarily poets tend to be my literary references because that's where I'm most comfortable. That's the, the water I feel like I, I'm best able to swim in. But I read so much memoir and so many essay collections leading up to the writing of this book and then during the writing of this book just to kind of get examples for myself, you know, models and really permission slips. Like who's doing memoir differently so that they can give me the courage and confidence to also tell my story but do it my way. And so a couple of people, um, I would say Lydia Yuknovich without a doubt, Carmen Maria Machado, Gina Frangello, Emily Rapp Black. I mean, there are honestly, there are so many, but reading memoir in particular that was structured in an inventive, slightly unexpected, unconventional way with really like 
clearly refined sentences that people really spent a whole lot of time on, that was my sweet spot. So as many books I could read like that, I was just devouring them. That's great. This sort of allowing memoir to play with form, that's my favorite thing. If you ask anyone that what I read, it's, does it, what does it do with form? That's always what I want. Yes, and so this, you're my people. Yes, and so this was just <laughs> top to bottom great. What's next for Maggie Smith, poet? I know you have a Substack that I um, I have do been very fond of. I'm so glad. Thank you. I'm having a lot of fun with that. Yeah, I mean, social media seems like a, a slightly unstable and unreliable space in which to have a relationship with readers <laughs> and teachers and writers and having like a home base where I can do some writing and and be in community with people seem like a good idea. So. So yes, that also I'll continue doing. I'll be over it for dear life on Substack. My next book after this one is a picture book. Okay. And that'll be out in 2024. I mercifully, for readers, did not illustrate it. The <laughs> amazingly talented Leanne Hatch did, which is why it's so gorgeous and charming and not, you know, pencil drawings of stick people. You didn't people. break the markers <laughs> back out for this one? No one wants my marker people <laughs> in this, you know, just stapled notebook pages. <laughs> we'll just go back to the old elementary school chapbook zine yes. style. Hey, um, there's a market for everything. I did not DIY this. It, it will be gorgeous and not because of me. It will be gorgeous because of, of Leanne. So that's called My Thoughts Have Wings. And um, it'll be out in another year. How exciting. Another yeah. thing to, to put in. And another sort of interesting adventure, a new form, a new thing to uh, experiment with. So that's very exciting. My thought exactly. I think that all of our listeners should really go and get You Could Make This Place Beautiful. It's out now. I can't stop talking about it. I think I want other people to talk about it with. So thank you, Maggie Smith, for joining us today. It's been such a great conversation, and uh, I can't wait for everyone to read this book. No, thank you so much. It's been a joy. Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of You Could Make This Place Beautiful. I'm Mark coming to you from My Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I've got two fantastic booksellers, Jamie and Madison, who will be recommending books. So take it away, ladies. All right, I think I'm going to start this one off. If you enjoyed Maggie Smith's meditation on her divorce, I've got the Cost of Living by Deborah Levy to recommend. Deborah Levy wrote one of my favorite novels in the last few years, The Man Who Saw Everything. And I found her to be extraordinarily observant. Um, and so I sought out more of her work. Uh, she was a well-regarded playwright and poet, and she's been a finalist for the Booker Prize as a novelist two times. This nonfiction is the second book in her living autobiography series. And the first is largely about motherhood. The second one, though, begins right as her marriage ends. And she moves from her kind of posh Victorian home to an oddball flat with her teenage daughters. And she says that she often writes at this time in a first person voice that is I, but also not I. So it's um, autobiographical-ish. So Levy likens her marriage breakup to, and this time of transition to grieving. And she needs a way to process all these emotions, but she can't do it without making art. And in her new space, she's got 
nowhere to write. She's had to leave her orderly former study that's book-lined in her former home, and she's drifting a bit when she's gifted the use of her new neighbor's dusty shed. And it turns out to be an absolute refuge for her. It's a far cry from her old workplace. It's drafty and cold, but she loves it. And under the watchful eye of that neighbor and of her neighbor's one-eyed dog, uh, she writes three books in this cold spiderwebby shed. And she treks to and from meetings with editors and film producers on a newly found e-bike that becomes a surprisingly important part of her day-to-day life. It plays a key part in the book as well. And so through all of this, she keeps asking, what what should a woman be? And throughout the book, she returns to themes of women and art and the confines of femininity, of women as named objects. Um, Every man she meets in the book refers to the unnamed my wife or my girlfriend or my mother in the background of their lives. And as she explores each of these themes around womanhood, um, she does it as if it's a main character in a novel. And ultimately, she decides that it's time to find new main characters with other talents. So she starts looking for inspiration. She looks to other women artists, as well as um, a small stack of poetry and novels and James Baldwin's writings that she takes into the shed with her, uh, in addition to all of her paperwork from her old office. So she's got all of her old half-finished books and slips of poetry and scenes from plays to examine and to think about her conflicting roles as um, both artist and mother. Uh, And so if it seems, you know, maybe not a significant biography when I talk about it, it's really her writing style uh, that packs a punch. So if all of this seems to be a little bit trifling, it's Levy's economy in writing that really impresses me. These short, sharp sentences They're clever, but they seem effortless, and she knows just what to say to provoke and to send you down a path wandering. That's my recommendation. Madison, what do you have for us? It sounds amazing. I chose a book that was actually written by a Barnes & Noble bookseller um, who was at my previous location, River Crossing. She wrote this poetry collection called Broken Reverie by Elle Madison. I chose it because I think at its core, it is so empowering because it's very relatable. So it's a poetry collection, but I really, really, truly believe it's also her story that she chose to tell through poetry. So this poetry collection, grab your tissues. You know how I like to recommend books that you need a box of tissues with you. It's so raw and vulnerable. And I think that's a real talent when you're writing is to show that vulnerability and that rawness. And she really captures that. You get to go with her through her heartbreaks, good times, bad times. I think it's so relatable. And at its core, I remember there's one poem where she talks about like, waiting at an airport and kind of like waiting for that loved one, but like, are they actually going to show up? Are they not? And it's such like this vulnerable open piece that I think she was very strong at like writing this and telling her story. Uh, Because I truly believe sometimes when we pick up these poetry collections, even though it's labeled as poetry, if you open it and if you look into like the poet's background, it really can be seen kind of as a poetic biography. Why I love poetry is because it has that like 
raw, relatable emotion. And I think you really, really get it in this poetry collection, which is why I wanted to recommend it. And I think it's a perfect opportunity to support those local booksellers because I think a lot of us, a lot of us love to write. And this is just one who got to get her work published. And it is amazing. I can't brag about it, talk about it enough. It is truly a remarkable piece of work, which is why I wanted to recommend Broken Reverie by Elle Madison. Excellent, excellent. As always, you both pick such fantastic books and fit so well. Thank you very much, as always. But that's all we have for today. Thank you for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. Jamie, where are you at? I am at my home store at BN Leewood KS in Leewood, Kansas. And Madison, where are you? Hi, I am at my store in Los Angeles. You can follow us at BN Evans Grove. All right, everybody. That's all we have. Thanks for tuning in and happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.